I want to first uh, touch base with the story of Jesus because as Jesus is coming to the end of his life, in the final hours, he gathers together with his disciples in an upper room and they overhear him pray. There are 11 listening. One has already left the group. But as Jesus prays, he prays that these 11 would become one and then he prays for you and for me. Let's open up the Bible to that prayer. Would you turn to John chapter 17, verses 20 through 24? If you're grabbing the Pew Bible, you can uh, find that passage on page 880. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 24. And as we read this together, I want to invite you to listen for Jesus' math. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Joe Rance was a loner. He had learned to live as one. And I think part of that is culture. Um, and many of us in the Pacific Northwest have learned to live as one, right? There are a lot of Northern European ethnicities running around here. This is sort of a frontier town. We've got the Seattle freeze, and right? This is a, it's not that we don't like other people. It's just that we don't need them uh, all the time. And so we're pretty comfortable living by ones. But it wasn't just culture that shaped Joe Rance. It was also his upbringing. He had a very, very hard upbringing. He was born to parents who were struggling through the Great Depression. One of his earlier memories is of his mom coughing up blood before she passed away, leaving him without a mother. And his dad would remarry, um, but his dad moved them around, struggling as a mechanic to support his family. And Joe's stepmother never took to him didn't like him, and she basically kicked him out of the family. When Joe was 10 years old, he remembers sitting on the steps of the half-built uh, shack and squim on the Olympic Peninsula and watching his family get into the car. And he asked his dad, where are we going? And his dad said, I don't know where we're going, but I know you're not coming with us. His dad sat with a 10-year-old boy and explained that they were leaving him all alone to fend for himself in this home. And what Joe Rance would recall of his dad's last words on those steps were this. Look, son, if there's one thing I figured out about life, it's that if you want to be happy, you have to learn how to be happy on your own. 
And then that little boy watched those car doors close and his whole family drive away into the pouring rain. And he was all by himself. I want to suggest to you this evening that that's the way Jesus finds each and every one of us. He finds us by ourselves. He finds us wherever we are in life, all alone. I want you to remember that we're talking about what it means to be a disciple in this series, and this is our last night in the Apprentice series. But remember where the disciples begin their relationship with Jesus Christ. He comes to them individually and they respond to him one by one. Matthew sits at the toll booth collecting tolls. He's by himself. The woman at the well, Samaritan, she's by herself at the well when Jesus comes. Nathaniel sits underneath a fig tree when the Lord comes to him. And Peter and Andrew are together, but they're really alone. And they have to respond individually as Jesus comes. And he says to them and to all of them and to us, you follow me. You follow me. There's no such thing as genetic Christianity. There's no such thing as a secondhand faith. It doesn't help you that your parents believe. It doesn't help you that your spouse believes. That nice person who prays for you from time to time and may even invite you to come here at church. You have to believe someday for yourself. They say living in a garage doesn't make you a car. <laughs> You could be sitting on a step and watch the car pull away from you and you go, oh my gosh, I thought I was with that crew, but you never made it your own. Well, tonight's the night. Jesus, in this prayer, is praying for you individually. He knows your name. He knows who you are and what you're going through, and he's praying in this prayer for you. Remember, he says, I don't just pray for these, and he's thinking of the 11 that are in front, but I'm praying for those who will come to believe in me through their word, and the New Testament is their word. That's what they wrote for us. So that when you and I read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit of Jesus gives you an introduction to Jesus Christ. And Jesus then very personally is calling for you. Do you know that you are a gift to Jesus? You are the gift that Jesus wants the Father to give him. You see that also in this prayer. Jesus says in verse 24, I desire. Let me ask you. Don't you think that when you pray, you want, you're asking for what you want most? Or, or you're asking for what's hardest? I think all the more so at the end of your life. And, and so what does Jesus want most? He says, I desire those whom you have given to me, Jesus says to the Father. And he says, verse 24 continues on, uh, I desire that those also whom you have given to me, that is to say, they're, they're the gift that you promised me. You love me, Father, before the foundation of the world, and you promised me that you would give me Mary and Susan and James and Philip. And so you are. You're the gift that Jesus wants. You're the one for which Jesus dies. That's what John 3.16 says, For God so loved this world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And someone has said that if you were the only person alive, Jesus Christ would have died for you. And I believe it. If you were just one, Jesus would give his life for you. You are a unique, unrepeatable miracle. Just you. And that's the importance of the individual and the importance of being as one. But rowing is a team sport, isn't it? The one gets into a boat of nine eight oarsmen or women and a coxswain. 
Daniel James Brown in his book has a great paragraph in which he talks about the nature of the sport. And I want to read it to you because it struck me as I read that this is a pretty good description of the church. See if you think so too. He writes, races are won by crews. And great crews are carefully balanced blends of both physical abilities and personality types. A crew composed entirely of eight amped up, overtly aggressive oarsmen will often degenerate into a dysfunctional brawl in a boat or exhaust itself in the first leg of a long race. Similarly, a boatload of quiet but strong introverts may never find the common core of fiery resolve that causes the boat to explode past its competitors when all seems lost. No, good crews are good blends of personalities. Someone to lead the charge, someone to hold something in reserve, someone to pick a fight, someone to make peace, someone to think things through, someone to charge ahead without thinking. Somehow, all of this must mesh. That's the steepest challenge. Even after the right mixture is found, each man or woman in the boat must recognize his or her place in the fabric of the crew, Accept it and accept the others as they are. It's an exquisite thing when it all comes together in just the right way. That's nine. Struggling to compete as one. And this would not be easy for Joe Rance. Not only because of the philosophy that his father had given him. Remember, you have to learn how to be happy on your own but also because he was different when he came to the University of Washington. There he would meet wealthier students with pressed slacks and nice sport coats, and they would make fun of him when he walked across the campus in that old, dirty, dowdy sweater that had those holes in it, but that was all he had. You see, Joe Rance came from a poor family, and this was the time of the Depression. In fact, in 1933, Virtually all of the boys that would finally make it through the selection process and actually land in the freshman boat, the first boat, all came from hardships. They were the sons of farmers and fishermen and lumberjacks. They had gone down to the boathouse because they understood that if they were on the crew, if they could make it on the crew, this would increase their chances of being able to get a part-time job, which was the only way that they would be able to continue as a student. They were working their way through college, semester after semester. And these were rough boys, and they didn't always get along with each other. They didn't always like each other. Coaches put boats together. And trust me, coaches don't ask you who do you want to be in your boat? They put the boat together and they tell you who's going to be in the seat in front of you and behind you and which seat you'll sit in. It's the crews that have to decide whether they will be a boat. Joe Rant struggled with this for a while. By the way, the freshman crew in 1933 was amazing. Uh, they beat Cal. And uh, Cal had been the crew that had sent the last Olympic boat. They were great, certainly the best on the West Coast. So this freshman crew beat Cal was a big deal. But remember, year after year, students keep enrolling in University of Washington and stronger, more experienced, better oarsmen would continue to arrive. And it was not at all clear that Joe Rance would be able to continue to compete at an elite level with all of that, particularly given he wasn't meshing well with the rest of the boat. 
Now, there was a man named George Pocock, a familiar name to us here in Seattle. George Pocock was an eccentric Brit who had come to Seattle through Vancouver. He was the boatman and the boat builder. He built extraordinary shells. They were very fast. He was brilliant. He was quite a good rower himself. He was revered by the crew. You wouldn't even speak to Pocock unless spoken to. He was almost a mythical figure. He worked upstairs in the boathouse. They'd given him the loft as his uh, workshop. It's where he made the boats. One day, George Pocock reached out to Joe, and he invited Joe to come up into his loft, sit down and have a conversation with him. It would be a turning point in Joe's life. I personally think that George Pocock had been the father that Joe Rance never really had. And when George Pocock sat down with Joe Rance, he acknowledged that Joe had been having trouble getting along with the boys. And this is what Pocock said to Joe. If you don't like some fellow in the boat, Joe, you have to learn to like him. Learn to like him. It has to matter to you whether he wins the race, not just whether you do. And then he says, Joe, when you really start trusting those other boys, you will feel a power at work within you that is far beyond anything you've ever imagined. Sometimes you'll feel as if you rode right off the planet and are rowing among the stars. Bit of a poet, George Pocock, I think. Isn't that beautiful? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about what rowers call swing. Swing is when there's a synchronicity and there's a unity among those nine athletes um, and it's like the boat goes to hyperspace. I've experienced this in a boat one time, and, and this particular shell hummed when we experienced swing. It's a zen. It's a beautiful moment. And there is, this Pocock's talking not about Joe's strength or power at this point. He's talking about the power of the boat, and you can't imagine feeling it. It's a great feeling. But it requires... Joe, to start learning to like and start trusting the boys. Well, a lot of us don't trust the church today. And that's, I think, for good reason. A lot of us have been hurt by the church. A lot of us know people that have been hurt deeply by the church. And frankly, if we're to be honest, a lot of us would have to say, you know, and I don't really like the people in the church and so when we're reading the Apostles' Creed and we come to that part in the Creed that says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, there's not a lot in there that really warms our hearts. But I wonder if we've forgotten the meaning of those words. Church, for example. You know what it means? Originally, it means the called out ones. It's simply a collection of individuals who have heard the good news of Jesus and who have allowed him to call them out into this new society. And holy, to me it conjures up images of um, self-righteous, sanctimonious people walking around thumping their chest and looking for approval. But that's not what holy means at all. The Bible, holy simply means something that belongs to God. And the whole Bible from beginning to end is at pains to show us that God takes to himself as his own that which is unholy. So to say I believe in a holy church is to say I believe in a church that God has come to see as holy even though they're not. It's his grace that's on display. And the word universal, I mean Catholic, it means universal. And let me tell you just a quick story about that word, why it's so important. It comes into the creed later. In AD 303, 
Diocletian, the Roman Empire, unleashes this angry persecution on the church, particularly in North Africa. And at that time, a lot of the bishops hand over their Bibles to be burned to Roman authorities. And the reason they do that, by the way, is they're trying to protect their ministry and their congregation. And so they, they, they hand over, it's just a book, they hand it over and it gets burned. But three years later, when the persecution finally settles down, there's a church split. Another group of people who become called the Donatists say, well, you guys aren't real followers of Jesus. Anybody who would give up their Bible to a Roman to be burned really isn't a real Christian. And we're this kind of elite now, pure church that wouldn't ever compromise its principles. And so there were two churches. And Augustine and others at that time said, no, 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 no. Jesus has but one body. There is a universal church, just one universal church. So when you say, I believe in the Catholic church, you're not talking about denomination. You're saying, I believe in a church that is diverse and that is inclusive. There's just one church, and we're a part of it. Those who follow Jesus love the church, not because it's lovable, but because our Savior loves the church. Do you hear him here on his knees begging the Father, praying for the church, praying for you. This is what he cares most about. We say credo ecclesiam, I believe in the church, not because it's a beautiful thing, but as an article of faith. We believe like Jesus believes. And Jesus prays for what? May they all be one. May they all be completely one. One church. Unified. The word completely is translated as adverb in our text. In the Greek, it's a verb, and it's related to the word teleos, which means goal or end or maturity. And Jesus is saying, God, I pray that they will mature into their unity, that one day they will all be as one, every single last one of them. And the model for that is his own unity with the Father, isn't it? He says it twice, as you are in me and I am you, may they be one. As we are one, may they be one. So this is where the apprentice theme comes in. Remember, our goal is to become like Jesus. And Jesus is committed to community. <laughs> Jesus has lived in eternal community. Three diverse persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in one God, perfect unity. Jesus can't imagine life any other way. And so that's why he's praying, may they discover this. Remember, John 15, Jesus has said, here's a new commandment, you love one another. And then he says, want to know why I tell you that? So that my joy may be in you, and so that your joy may be complete. You see, Joe Rance's dad had it exactly wrong. You're not happy when you're alone, you're happy when you're one with others. That's what makes life rich. And, and that's been Jesus' eternal experience. It's this joyful fellowship of mutual love and generous service between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he said, oh, I so want that for you. Father, would you give that to them? And so uh, the takeaway tonight is to learn to love, like Joe had to do. But not just to learn to love, I want to say to learn to love to love, like Jesus does. And you could do it with God's help. He's in you, giving you his love, even for those hard people in the church and outside the church. Well, Adolf Hitler staged the 1936 Olympics as propaganda. 
He knew the whole world was watching. And he had a message, really a horrible message. And he was trying to use the Olympics to mask this growing militarism that he was stirring up in Germany at the time. He used the Olympics to to showcase his perverse idea that Aryans are somehow superior to other ethnicities. And um, because the whole world will be watching, they really transformed Berlin for these Olympics. And by the way, you know the opening and closing ceremonies that we do today in the Olympics? You know who invented all the pomp and circumstance? Adolf Hitler. That's his legacy. He invented that. And because this was propaganda. And he hired an extraordinarily gifted artist named Lenny Riefenstahl. This woman was an amazing filmmaker. Remember, this is 1936. You saw some of her footage there. The moving images were produced by her. They focused on rowing because it was a premier event at the time. And the Germans were bound to win. So they put swastikas on the uh, chests of these burly German oarsmen. And they got... The Hitler up there on a, on a deck, his chief brass, the lieutenants were there. And the plan, Hitler himself was going to take the victory wreath and put it on his beloved German uh, um, oarsman. Well, uh, it was a dark day, a grim day for the Americans, the day of the finals. Because they had been assigned to lane six. And it was a very windy day, and lanes five and lane six were exposed to the wind. The others were sheltered. They, they failed in their protest. This didn't seem right. Um, it was not just dark because they were in lane six and there was a stiff headwind. It was dark because their star stroke, the man who sits in the eighth seat, was really sick. Um, Donald Hume, he had a fever and he was very, very weak, and there was much discussion as to whether he should even get in that boat. But the problem was, since 1933, they had tried a lot of different combinations. There were better, stronger, bigger rowers. But they had never found another combination that would go as fast or win as frequently as the original freshman crew from 1933. And so they knew they couldn't win without what Joe Rance called the boat. They all wanted Hume at stroke. And so he crawled into his seat, and they went out to the starting line. It's a 2,000-meter race, and with 800 meters left in the race, they were in dead last, the Americans, just in dead last. They were withering behind that uh, headwind, and Hume was beginning to grow incoherent. But somehow, at the 800-meter mark, and nobody knows how, they rallied. Unbelievable. Their stroke rate... They spiked up to 44 strokes per minute. You could see it in that video if you paid attention, knew what to look for. And, and inch by inch, they closed the gap until within a half a second, they pushed the nose, the bow ball across the finish line ahead of any other crew. And you could notice in Lenny's photography, the Americans were way out of focus because they were focusing on the Germans there in lane one or lane two, right? What a moment. And as that boat came over to the docks, Herr Führer had to put a wreath on a husky. (laughs) And the whole world, the whole world was watching. 
see this message, this propaganda that it's by military might, it's by brute sheer force that the world will be changed, proved to be wrong. In that moment, those who were paying attention could see it's by love. It's by unity. You see, love is not just a sentimental luxury. It's a mission strategy. It's the strategy of God through Jesus Christ who gave his life in love and then calls the church to be one, to love each other, to learn to love, to love, so that as one, wherever we are, the world around us will say, I can't figure out how that's possible. That's real power. And so Jesus gives us his purpose statement for these prayers, his motive twice. He says, so that, may they be one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, so that the world may know that I love them. That's what Jesus says. Love is the strongest power in the world and it's meant to change the world. How the world needs to see real love today. We are divided across economics, across politics, across creed, across ethnicity, you name it. Can you imagine a world where people begin to see the followers of Jesus Christ really loving each other? So I want to ask you tonight, who's in your boat? Who's in your boat? And what does it mean to you that you didn't put them there? That God put that person there. That God put those people there. Husband, I'm asking you who's in your boat. Roommate, I'm asking you who's in your boat. Coworker, I'm asking you who's in your boat. I'm talking about our small groups, wherever they meet in the neighborhoods, as they love one another and love their neighbors. I'm talking about uh, your coworkers, the construction crews, moms, groups, families. Yeah, not everybody's in the church yet. But as they see your love, Jesus' plan is that you will embody John 3, 16, and that will become the driving narrative of their life as well. Well, you can see the shell used by the Huskies in the 1936 Olympics if you go down to the water here at Montlake and into the Conabera Boathouse. You can see it there. It's hanging upside down from the ceiling. But you won't see the boat there. You won't see the boat there. If you want to see the boat, you have to look into Joe Rance's eyes, bright as they are, as he tries to hold back the tears. You see, because those men touched his life. Those men changed his life. Those men became his life. The only place you can see the boat is in Joe Rance's heart. Because in the end, we learn, the boys become the boat. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how enticing it is to think that you might invite us into the beauty of a loving fellowship where each is selfless and looks out for the interests of others. How inviting it is that we could love with your love when we're at the end of our capacity to love. That you would love through us. That the Father would answer this prayer. It wouldn't be dependent on us to fulfill it, but you would fulfill it in and through us. And so we want to open ourselves up to you tonight first to believe because you come to us individually and we want to say yes to you, Jesus. But secondly, to look around us and see the people and embrace them just as you have embraced us. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory around the world. Amen.